and this is episode 67 of Fried Squirms. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. <clears throat> All right, I'm not going to be able to keep that shit up the entire time. It was fun while it lasted. <laughs> uh, this week, we are doing Alien, yeah. just to get it off the bat, because we have to go into a little bit of depressing news, I'm sure you might have seen. Last night, yeah. Damn it, we did. lost another good one. The Gunny himself, fucking Arlie Ermy passed. Yeah, I saw that. It was all over Facebook. And, you know, growing up watching Full Metal Jacket, he's been a mainstay in a lot of films that I've watched throughout my time. So, I mean, it's unfortunate. I mean, yeah, he's older, but, you know, still sucks. So I know this absolutely must not have been the case everywhere, or else this movie wouldn't have done poorly, as well have been not well-received and not very well-critically reviewed. But for some reason, the movie Saving Silverman caught on fucking bonkers huge at my high school everyone loved that movie but that movie's fucking funny fucking man fucking quote that movie i love season it's the perfect crime boys <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's a good fucking movie it's funny yeah jack black right yeah i used to watch a shit ton of mail call yeah, amanda p yeah that movie's awesome mail call yeah i remember watching that too god the gunny's a good one i mean all right this is how much of a legend this man truly is we covered the shining a while back and did a commentary for it and one of the things we pointed out was how much that Kubrick was a perfectionist. And the just ungodly amount of takes that wow. some of those scenes required. And in general, just Kubrick was known for doing a shit ton of takes You're right. for perfectionist. Every scene. And he went through every one of those fucking shots, too, during the editing process. It's like, wow, man. Arlie Ermey was so perfect that in Full Metal Jacket, a Kubrick movie, he got to have control of most of his own dialogue and he only required two to three takes wow. on each scene that says a lot about from kubrick himself yeah it says a lot about gunny's acting because we know what shelly duvall went through we know what scatman crothers went through <laughs> so <laughs> you know wow he was originally just supposed to be a consultant okay and the tape that he made of him dressing down some fucking recruits was so perfect for what Kubrick wanted. He's like, oh, no, this is just the guy. Like, Perfect fit. Why do we just have him, you know, telling us what it should sound like? He's perfect for it, so. I will say this. During that opening, you know, portion of the film, and we're talking about Full Metal Jacket here, there was a reason growing up that I watched those parts is because of his undressing down of all those cadets for me, growing up, I was like six or seven watching that film. I used to laugh my nuts off <laughs> because it was the most cussing I'd ever heard in any film at that point in mm -hmm. my life. So, yeah, I'd stay up just to watch that part. And then when, of course, they go overseas, that's when usually I was like, all right, time to go to bed. <laughs> and then to tie it just back into the horror world, he was in the Texas, Texas Chainsaw, Chainsaw yeah. remake. He sure was. So Yeah, I mean, great actor. From what I understand, he was a great human being as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's unfortunately passed. It is a part of what we do on this show is we do talk about people in the horror genre that do pass. So it's, you know, it's just another unfortunate event. And even if you wouldn't have been in the horror genre, I would have brought this up. Yeah, it's still important. I fucking love the gunny. You and I both grew up watching them, so... But I guess beyond that, I suppose the only news I really have from this week is I did make a purchase. I'll mention it more when it actually comes in because <laughs> nice. I'll probably like put a picture up on the gram or something. Yeah, yeah. And I might of this one. You too. should. That's awesome. Uh, but we finally started decorating our fucking recording room a little bit. Yeah. And so now as I sit here recording this, 
I have the Tusk poster. Oh, dude, down I fucking love Tusk. And a, a million fucking people just groaned because it's not the greatest movie so ever. But I fucking love this. I love this poster, first off. This is such a genius fucking poster. It is beautiful. I mean, I'm pretty sure I sucked the poster off when we actually did it on its episode. Ah, uh, but it's well worth doing again. Um, <laughs> it's awesome. But as I've always said, like none of these podcasts would have ever happened if I wouldn't have been listening to Kevin Smith's podcast. Yeah. And so having a movie that came from a podcast. That's amazing. Up on the wall. It feels full it feels like something special. Yeah. yeah. Full circle in a way. So love it. Well kudos, man. Now the only other information I have and I shared some photos with you earlier is I finally got a package in from Unearth Films. You gotta put that shit up on the ground. Oh, I'm going too. to. I got that in like ooh, right before I came over actually. It's going up soon. Outside of that, I told you I watched a few movies. I'll reserve, you know, which ones I've watched, but pretty interesting. Starting in on another film, finished Helsing. I think I mentioned that maybe last time, but if not, yeah, man, had fun watching that. I was going to go try to see A Quiet Place this weekend, and then I realized I was feeling more broke than that, so. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I can understand that. No, I, I talked to him earlier, my older brother is he told me he watched it with his girlfriend last night and he had good things to say about it. He said that literally the theater was like silence. You could hear a pin drop. So Nice. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm super excited. I'm definitely going to try to see it soon. Yeah, I mostly have just been fucking playing video games, to be honest. Yeah, so. I did a little bit of that this weekend. But outside of that, man, I, I took in this film, what we're doing today, and uh, looking forward to talking about it, man. What a great film. Right. Oh, shit, yeah. Let's get into it. Alien. Got what, 1979? Yeah. Alien? Let's do this. Guts and bolts. Guts and bolts of Alien were up in them. Yeah, we said we're trying to avoid the acid. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding, right? So, yeah, our 67th Alien, 1979, a joint venture of the United Kingdom and the United States. So, we should give probably a little synopsis. I mean, if you don't know, we'll at least Um, tell you something about it. (laughs) Let's see, Alien, a synopsis. Well, it's in the title that an alien's involved, so I'm not going to fucking yeah, dance that's, around that. Shouldn't, like, so this is the part where it's spoiler-free, but the name should imply something, <laughs> you would think, <clears throat> right? Oh, ooh, here we go. Oh, this is going to be maybe a little bit of a tip-off okay. to, uh, maybe not necessarily a tip-off, not in a spoilery way, but into some of the horror that's contained within this that was somewhat intentional, mm-hmm. quite a bit intentional. A crew in space runs into the perfect creature and gets raped to death. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. <laughs> Rape synopsis. The mostly male crew. Yeah. But and Sigourney Weaver is possibly the most badass final girl yeah. of all time. So, I think, yeah, arguably so. Because parts of this are a little bit slashery. Thinking like old school slasher, like the way they treat the alien reminds me a little bit of Michael Myers and Halloween. Yeah, I can see that. A little bit. Makes sense. So I have no problem calling her a final girl. That's what I'm getting at. Fuck you guys. (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good synopsis. Like I said, it's pretty brief and to the point. And with that, we can start talking about some of the people who went into making the film, starting with the oh, crew. Oh, by the way, nobody actually gets raped like this is in that movie. No, you've no. never <laughs> seen fucking Alien. <laughs> yeah, it's mm, it's a weird metaphorical rape. <laughs> a literal and metaphorical in, in the same maybe sense. Maybe I should, yeah, maybe I should say that about my synopsis is nobody's actually getting raped. Right. But they do get raped to death. We'll get into that in the squeals, right? <laughs> All right, so starting off, I'd like to talk about our director. Huge name when you consider his body of work, and I'm talking about Ridley Scott. So when I think about Ridley Scott, I go back a little bit, and I think of Harrison Ford and Sean Young and Daryl Hannah and Rutger Hauer. I start thinking about Blade Runner. And then when I start thinking more about him, here's some of the interesting things, too. I'm a little bit of a fan of what they consider... Glam rock that came out in kind of like the mid mm-hmm. to late seventies, and he directed a video by one of my favorite glam rock bands, Roxy Music, Ryan Eno, Brian Ferry, and anyhow he directed their Avalon video. It's like nice because I've seen that. I love the song. See, for me, when I think of Ridley Scott, what I think of is this right here. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North. General of the Phoenix Legions, loyal servant to the true Emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Wow. Fucking gladiator, yeah. son. I don't know how many times I watched that fucking movie. That's a great film, man. I was thinking, I know you're going with this when I started hearing the lines, but some of his other films, here's a Tim Curry, a Tom Cruise film that came out in the mid-80s, Legend. He was a director of that. There's another little film by the title of Thelma and Louise that he was responsible for directing. He helped direct Hannibal from the early 2000s, the film. I always forget that that's a fucking Ridley Scott yeah. movie. He kind of went in a different direction a little bit in his career. Like, he kind of got out of doing, like, sci-fi and started doing more dramatic roles. I mean, you know, directed films, that is. He went on to do, like, Black Hawk Down, Matchstick Men, American Gangster. I like both of those movies a lot. Yeah. I remember I went and saw Kingdom of Heaven in the theaters and was kind of let down by it. Kind of felt like he phoned <laughs> it in and was just like, it was like Gladiator Light. Yeah, I can see that. So a little bit further on, he went on to do Prometheus, right, which kind of kick-started that sci-fi bent again. He went on to do The Martian with I still Matt seen Damon. It. I haven't seen that either. Oh, it's I need to watch to be it. so fantastic, though. The latest one, Alien Covenant. Now, I do want to get a little bit into his early career because he started off by doing advertisements. He got into, I think, screenplays and whatnot and kind of he didn't like some of the direction and some of the payoff that he was getting. And long story short, he and his brother got into advertisement. They did stuff for like, I think it's called Harvest Bread. And it's it had a catchphrase that's still very popular over in the United Kingdom. Anyhow, off the back end of his success from his first film, which kind of got him notoriety, I think, in some of the film festivals. Maybe Cannes, I think, is one of them. The film's called A Duelist. Then he went on, got the script for this film, Alien. And since then, it's <laughs> I think he wound up getting knighted in the early 2000s. For his contribution to British film. and Of course. <laughs> it's like, wow. So, needless to say, huge director, very well known across many decades and platforms. So, And when you see the genius of this movie, it's no fucking wonder. There are parts I'll talk about a little bit later on that I could kind of see where he started from this film. 
and then other films, he kind of used the same vision as what I'm getting at. So anyhow, awesome film. And this is probably his biggest film, I would think, not only for that time period, but just in the genre itself and the mm-hmm. sci-fi horror genre. Nice oh, crossover. Yeah. So, yeah, anyhow, moving on from uh, Mr. Scott, we have two writers. We have Dan O'Bannon, who helped write the story and the screenplay, and we have Ronald Shusett. So I'll start with Dan O'Bannon because he started off doing a Carpenter film, a little film called Dark Star, Star. (laughs) right? And I believe he also had a little bit of hand doing some special effects, if I'm not mistaken, which led him into this role. And then he started writing scripts for films like Dead and Buried, which is like an early 80s horror film. He went on to do a couple of segments in the uh, animated film Heavy Metal. He wound up writing a screenplay for The Return of the Living Dead from 1985, which is a really fucking good film. <laughs> he also went on to do some Toby Hooper films like uh, Life Force. He also wrote the screenplay for Total Recall. And basically, almost every one of the Alien franchise films, like Aliens, Alien 3, Resurrection... Aliens vs. Predator, I think both of them, and also The Covenant. And then Ronald Shusett did the same. I think they helped do a lot of films together. I think they're like a production company, if I'm not mistaken. And as far as O'Bannon goes, not too long ago, we covered a little movie called Chud. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he worked as a consultant on Chud. I can see and that. And helped come up with the design for the creatures. Which, once we start talking about some of the special effects, he lends a hand in that, too. Because I think he was a visual, conceptual artist for some of these creatures. Yeah, those two guys are responsible for writing. Cinematographer, pretty interesting name. This is Derek Van Lint. He went on to do DPU work for such things as Dragon Slayer, The Spreading Ground. And then he also helped with X-Men from 2000 with the miniature photography for their special effects. Our editors, there's several of them. We have Terry Rawlings, and we also have Peter Weatherly. There's another person I'll mention here in a little bit if you happen to see the director's cut. This person, I think you and I talked about this mm-hmm. <laughs> beforehand. Which, uh, they were the way, like, I watched the director's cut. Yeah. I know that you watched both, I watched the, both the versions yeah. and the directors. Exactly. So the person who did the director's cut is David Crowther. And when I looked at this person, this gentleman, I was like, I wonder how old he was and how far back his career goes, etc. He would have been nine years old when this film was released. There's no way he was an editor <laughs> for you know the theatrical cut. So he went on to do, like I think, the 25th anniversary edition. While we're on that subject, I did see a quote where Ridley Scott himself considers them both to be the director's cut and says that the theatrical cut was the best that he could do at the time. Exactly. And that makes perfect sense, given the uh, time period. And the difference is what? like Not very much. The, the director's cut has five minutes of the theatrical cut taken out mm-hmm. and four minutes put in. It's actually yeah. one minute shorter than the theatrical cut. And that's what he mentioned, too. I did read a little bit about that. But, yeah, there's not much disparity. I think I mentioned to you a little bit, but there's not much deviation at all. Mm-hmm. So I'll go back to Terry Rawlings. Now, when you look at some of the body of work, they helped edit films such as Chariots of Fire, Blade Runner, a Barbara Streisand film called Yentl. I'm almost certain it won an Oscar award for like best music. He also went on to do uh, editing work on the film Legend, the film FX, which we had mentioned a couple times on the show, the film Alien 3, Golden Eye. The Saint, and 2004's Phantom of the Opera. 
their partner Peter Weatherly helped do editing on the TV show back in 1980, Hammer House of Horror. They helped edit five episodes. The film Enigma, Creepshow 2, 1970s Scrooge, and the film The Anniversary, which I think is a Bette Davis film, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So these are some of the people who did the editing. Our music, huge names, two people I want to mention. First one is Jerry Goldsmith. They were the composer for the film, and I've got some of the credits. I believe he did the theme for The Man from Uncle. Like the television, I believe there was a, a movie adaptation of this. But if you hear the theme from The Man from Uncle, this is the person responsible. Oh, how about the score for Star Trek? Yeah, exactly. The motion picture from 1979. Think about The Omen. He got a lot of uncredited credits, which is mm-hmm. kind of weird to say. But he did some stuff for the film The Omen, Logan's Run, Damien, The Omen 2, Planet The Waltons. The yeah. If you know the theme for the Waltons, Poltergeist, both Gremlins 1 and 2. The Mummy. Yeah. Mulan. Legend. Rudy. Warlock. Total Recall. Basic Instinct. And then you start going on and on and on. It's like this person has, I want to say close to 200-something-odd credits. It's like, man, we'd be talking about this person all day. But if you have pretty much seen films that kind of fall into this category, you've probably heard his music more than once. So the person who actually helped conduct this was Lionel Newman, which I think he didn't get a credited part in this film, but he did help conduct the score. Our producers on this film are Gordon Carroll, David Giller, and Walter Hill. Our special effects team is Film Facts Animation Services Limited. They help with the special optical effects. I do want to mention some individuals. I have H.R. Giger. They helped with the alien design, and it was based off of some of his work. One in particular, and I think a couple of other individual pieces as well, but the one I have written down that it was based on was the Necronom number 4. Right there. If you want to go look up the inspiration, I would say that it's not safe for work. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's some wild shit going on in a lot Uh, of his works. I think maybe now might be the better time to bring up. I'm a big fan. Oh, man. It's fucking... Um, He's amazing. I actually, in the room that we record... Oh, yeah, right behind me. There's some Giger up on the wall. It's the cover to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's brain solid surgery. Yeah. And it kind of opens up like a triptych, too, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, it opens up. It's a triptych piece with... Oh, shit. I think part of it, it might be Work 216, Landscape 19. But the main two parts that you can see portions of from the front are work 217 ELP1 and work 218 ELP2. It's pretty awesome. Brain solid surgery is a euphemism for fellatio. <laughs> Just going to point that out, which sort of fits in. Yeah, he that's a good point. He does a bunch of really very sexually charged biomechanical stuff. Exactly. It's a lot of stuff that if you've seen anything from Alien, it looks like the shit in Alien except almost porn. Yeah. It very much is kind of in that realm like you're talking about. And that's kind of what I was going to mention anyhow. It's not exclusively that, though. I do want to point out that one of my favorite works by him is Birth Machine, which, despite the name, isn't sexual. It's actually mechanical and sort of based on the design of a gun. And you can see it is pretty nice. And I do have pictures of it just because I got a chance to see them live. Mm -hmm. But he did, as a sculpture the mic stand for Jonathan Davis of Corn. Oh, really? Yeah. That's pretty neat. I didn't know that. So if you ever get a chance to see Corn, 
because we all want to go see corn. Actually, fucking, I mean, I'd recommend go seeing corn because they put on a damn good show. <laughs> but awesome. yeah, Jonathan Davis's mic stand is a Giger. That's sculpture. pretty awesome. No doubt. It's pretty dope. He unfortunately passed what, it was uh, 2014 like years ago. Yeah. yeah. And uh, apparently he passed away from injuries due to a fall. Now, I was looking at some other things. Now, he does have a museum. I think there's two of them, but one in particular where it's in the uh, Chateau Saint-Germain in Gruyere in Switzerland. His wife, before his passing, is a curator of that museum, too. So it's kind of neat. So, I mean, there's places you can actually visit and still has his artwork, and it's pretty nice. And I like a lot of it is functional as well, some of his pieces. The person I did want to mention along with uh, Mr. Giger was Carlo Rambaldi. He helped with the design for the creature's head in this film. Our production companies are Brandywine Productions and 20th Century Fox. Distributors were 20th Century Fox for the 1979 USA theatrical release. The box office numbers are going to blow your mind, right? So initially this film was a low budget. I think it received like $4.5 million initially. And then as the storyboard started to come in and Ridley Scott was giving it to 20th Century, they liked the direction it was going in. They doubled it. And anyhow, this film had an estimated $9 to $11 million budget, depending on how you look at it. Opening weekend, it had a limited release. This was as of May 25th, 1979. It made $3.5 million. When you gross for the United States, it had a $78.9 million gross. When you do the cumulative worldwide for this film, it made $203.6 million. Jesus. Off of a nine to eleven million dollar budget, so pretty damn good. Needless to say, this spawned, you know, and this is no spoiler, but it did spawn all kinds of future entries to this series, and it's still continuing today. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, Um, it launched Ridley Scott's career, and a lot of other actors we'll mention here in just a moment. All right, so when you factor that in, two hundred three million dollars, Jesus Christ. Oh, and because of that, like, this is one of those podcasts where. Like, this movie is so well-received and been looked at so critically for a long time. We're probably not bringing anything new in this episode. There's a lot of information on this movie. That's There's a lot of information on this movie. And not only that, but it's very easy to find. Exactly. If you don't want to listen to us talk your fucking ear (laughs) off about it, it, it's super fucking simple to find a shit ton about this movie. I'm sure we're going to miss it. But we're going to definitely point out the shit that appeals to us. Exactly. And that's (laughs) what we're here for. (laughs) By the way, there's a shit ton about this movie. (laughs) Oh, well, considering it's almost 40 years old, (laughs) it's older than us. The release date for this film was May 25th, 1979. That was the limited USA. And then it got a worldwide theatrical release on june 22nd 1979 there are a few taglines i do want to mention one because it's probably the most infamous of all of them and this is in space no one can hear you scream so good yeah and i believe that one was coined by like somebody that wasn't really heavily involved in film which is like kind of a passing phrase they'd mentioned but it's stuck like a rung a bell and they're like that's perfect the other ones, there are like so there are several of them. Sometimes the scariest things come from within. Then you have yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty yeah, it's pretty I like that. And then it had it's Alien, the eighth passenger. It's like, all right, they're alright, I suppose. Okay, so that's what I have for 
the crew. Now I do want to talk about the cast because it's not a heavy loaded cast, but in terms of its star power, it's amazing. So I'll start off by talking about Tom Skerritt. He plays Dallas, which is basically he's the captain of the ship. And I started looking through his credits, and I mean, he's got a handful of things, but the things I want to mention were he was involved with MASH from 1970, the film that is. He went on to do like Harold and Maude, which is a really good film. It's kind of depressing a little bit. He's Viper. Yeah, exactly. Top Gun. He's Viper and Top Gun. <laughs> That's all that matters to me. Yeah, Fucking great film, man. He was in some Stephen King things like The Dead Zone. He starred in Cheers from 1988 television series. He went on to do Poltergeist Part 3. There's a film based right here in Montana. I think some of it was shot up the Blackfoot. Yes, that's, that's absolutely true. A river runs through it. It's pretty cool, man. It's got Radoff in it. We talked about Mr. Pitler a lot. And the other person, man... He did a bunch of Western shit back he, in the day. Oh, too. yeah. So, I mean, I think he, he got to start basically doing television series and then went on to film. There was something I didn't want to mention. There was a show back in the 90s my grandmother was a big fan of, early 90s, a show called Picket Fences. So if you're familiar with that, you've probably seen him in that. He went on to do uh, the film Contact. And if you like comedy with Mr. Marky Mark and Seth MacFarlane, he was in the film Ted, which is really cool. The next person I want to mention is actually somebody we've covered before because there's a film we did couple weeks back about a month or so ago and that was the cabin in the woods and this i'm talking about sigourney weaver oh yeah so sigourney weaver's well i guess she's not on the map because of this because she did what what, what did she get her start in wasn't it something else i think uh she was in annie hall which is a woody allen so yeah there we go yeah i mean she went to yale i mean she's educated she's smart she's known as the actress's actress but this is her first lead because i think she was a minor role in annie hall yeah, she mostly like, did like little bit parts. Now, here's something that I thought was kind of interesting. I believe that she and Meryl Streep were up for this part, and Meryl Streep had to turn it down. I don't know if it was for health reasons, but I was thinking, man, how much different would this film have been had Streep been cast as Ripley? Thank goodness Weaver was instead, because, uh, wow. Now, and this is where it starts to get fun for me with the cast, because we get to Sigourney Weaver, and my first thought is... Because of the time that I grew up and the order I encountered some of these movies, I think of her almost first. Almost first. I think of her as Ripley first. Right. But it's a toss-up with Galaxy Quest. Man, I go way back with her when I think about some of the film credits. I'd go back as far as like the first Ghostbusters. Well, that's the thing. I would have saw the Ghostbusters when I was young, but I, it, I would have been young enough that I wouldn't necessarily recognize it as being Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. No, I think I remember her from that time period. And then even, there was a film, I think in the late 80s, that came out, Gorillas in the Mist. Mm. Like, I remember her from that, but I didn't necessarily remember the film itself. I just knew it was about, you know, it's about apes. Yeah. About gorillas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was like, oh, it's pretty obvious. It's in the title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spoiler. Then she went on to do films that I was kind of starting to recognize once again were like the film Copycat. She was in Snow White, A Tale of Terrors. Uh, she went on to do the film The Ice Storm. You had mentioned Galaxy Quest. She was in a film with Jennifer Love Hewitt. You know, a little movie, not many people saw it. Avatar. Yeah, not very many people have probably seen it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's got a sequel maybe, or three or four <laughs> coming out. She also did a film, a Disney film we've mentioned before. She was in the film Holes, which I actually enjoy that film. Digging up the holes. It's not a bad film. 
Not bad. She was also in the film The Village. She had a major voice in the cartoon Pixar film, Wall-E. She was the baddie in The Defenders. Yeah, I got it written down. Spoilers in that. for a bit. Oops. I mean, she went on, of course, to carry out her role as Ripley in some further Alien films. You might have also seen her in the film Choppy, which I actually like. Mm. Has Diane Vard in it. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's a good film. All right. And the next person I should probably mention is Veronica Cartwright. She plays Lambert in this film. And I started looking at her filmography, and I was like, wow, it's pretty impressive. She started off as a child actress. And she was in a the major, birds. yeah, major Hitchcock film. God, I love The Birds. Dude, it's been way too long since I've seen The Birds. We're going to have to cover The Birds on this guy. It's great. Podcast. I mean, we haven't even really talked about Hitchcock a lot. No. I mean, but no, he's we'll classic. Know. We'll go there. All right. She went on to do things like, uh, you might have seen her in Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978. She started doing stuff like The Witches of Eastwick, which is a pretty good film. She got nominated for a Saturn Award for that. There's some other films to start looking at, like Candyman, Farewell to the say, Flesh. Cam- the Candyman, Farewell to Flesh. Yeah, she was in a film actually I like. It's really good. It's a sissy spacek film. Has uh, Nick Stahl and some other really good actors. And there's a film called In the Bedroom. Really depressing. Really good film though. I saw. I was like, wow, I didn't she, she was in that? Then there was a film I saw in the theater, 2001. Oh, I thought you were gonna say 2011's. Montana Amazon. No. <laughs> Did not know that movie existed till I looked up her filmography. I think you're going to like this one. So in 2001, I went and seen a comedy horror spoof starring some of the Wayans. And she was in Scary Movie 2. That's right. The opening sequence as the mother, they're spoofing The Exorcist, right? So I was like, wow, that is probably where I really first recognized her from. You might have also seen her in certain films like Kinsey. She was in Call of the Wild, which is actually a really good film, man. It's kind of another one of those sad but really good films. Talked about some of her television work. She was Violet Rutherford in Leave it to Beaver, and she reprised that role like much later as well. Wait, I want to point out again, she's in Montana Amazon. I saw that. That's <laughs> fucking funny. I might have to watch this movie. It also has Haley Joel Osment. <laughs> I mean, Haley Joel was the shit back in the day. I mean, you got to go there. I mean, she was in My Three Sons. She did some stuff with Alfred Hitchcock Presents. She was in Mod Squad, Dragnet. I mean, all kinds of cool shit. L.A. Law, I think she was in Touch by an Angel. I know you've talked about that. She was in ER as Norma Houston. The X-Files, she did several episodes of that. Got nominated for, I think, a Primetime Emmy Award for, like, Best Guest Appearance. <laughs> it's like, wow, man. I mean, some really cool credits, man. She's still acting. Great actress. I have some reservations about what I want to talk about with her character. <laughs> In the squill section. All right. So moving on from Veronica Cartwright, we have Harry Dean Stanton, who plays Brit Brett in this film. Ooh, talk about another guy with fucking Jeez. lot of fucking credits. Jesus Christ, yeah. Uh, so let me think. What do you want uh, to start? How about, I mean, <laughs> Escape from New York is where I'm going to go for, okay. for my Harry Dean. I think probably one of the first ones I remember him from growing up would have been Repo Man, because I did watch a lot of Emilio Estevez films. That's a pretty fucking wild film. Of course, he is in The Best Godfather. Numero dos? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that. He was in Cool Hand Luke, if you uh, enjoy baby boy films with <laughs> Paul Newman. I mean, you start looking at like Red Dawn, Alpha Dog. I know we've mentioned that a couple of times. Pretty in Pink. He was in Christine and the Green Miles, some Stephen King films. I mean, this one's for the kids. Avengers. Yeah. When Hulk craters... 
and that dude finds him and he's back to being Bruce Banner yeah. like in the crater. That's Harry Dean Stanton that finds him. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> now here's something that ties him right back to us here in Missoula. The Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, he was a favorite of David Lynch because he worked with David Lynch when David Lynch did Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, the movie adaptation, which is really fucking good, man. And there were some others I saw that. He worked, I think, with Jack Nicholson a lot. He was, uh, I think, his best man in his wedding in 1962. That's fucking wild. He was also a favorite of directors such as Sam Peckinpah, John Milius, Monty Hellman, and I did mention he was close friends with Jack Nicholson and Francis Ford Coppola. Now, here's something else, too, I recognize from. He did a, we've mentioned these guys before, Corey Feldman and Corey Haim. Now, we've mentioned Corey Feldman Mm -hmm. before. But he did a film with them in Dream a Little Dream in 1989. That might have been the first film I remember seeing him from. I probably didn't recognize him, knew he was, but definitely the first film. Yeah. Escape from New York's my Harry Dean, but I'm always happy to see the man. It's fucking fantastic, everything he does, this movie included. Yeah, he's pretty recognizable. You've probably seen him in several films, even though you might not know him by name, but he's pretty recognizable. I do want to talk about a major name. It's probably somebody I should have mentioned before, but this is going according to the cast of characters. But I want to talk about Mr. Hurt, Mr. John Hurt. He plays Kane in this film. Now, okay, when I see John Hurt, being the type of nerd that I am, and being in a post-Doctor Who 50th anniversary. Ooh, yeah. He's the war doctor for me. Nice. I, I got to see the doctor on screen when I watched this movie. And uh, and I'm going to tell you something right now. Let me, I'm going to get up. You, you fill for a second. Okay. So while you're doing that, I'm going to mention a few things that I remember him from. Now, I'm a big fan of... Orwell, George Orwell, that is. And he was in the movie adaptation of 1984. It's a great film. He started Midnight Express, which if you're familiar with The Cable Guy, Jim Carrey does a scene from Midnight Express where he goes, Oh, Billy! So that's the film that they're referencing in that. John Hurt, also, I mean, he actually did a lot of television series long before he got into film. And he was Caligula in I, Claudius, like, mm-hmm. well, from what I understand is I believe Penthouse did a Caligula film in the, in the 70s that had some major actors, like Helen Mirren was in it. Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, Malcolm McDowell, but it was basically um, pornography for the most yeah. part, bestiality, all kinds oh, yeah. of shit. Yeah, so it's kind of funny that he played Caligula, and then it got adapted into like that kind of production. But then I started looking at other films. He was in Spaceballs. He kind of reprised his role in a spoof, which is really fucking hilarious. I recently just watched Spaceballs with a friend of ours, Don Santo. I love John Hurt's turn as the War Doctor so much that for my personal having something Doctor Who around the house, being a giant fan, mm-hmm. I actually got the <laughs> oh, War Doctor's nice. sonic screwdriver. That that's is what fucking I, awesome. That's what I fucking keep around is John Hurt's version of the, the tool. That's pretty awesome. Of the tool, I like that. <laughs> now, he was also in Contact. We'd mentioned that film earlier. Night Train. I mean, he's just got a body of, of work that's like, it goes on and on. He was in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone as Mr. Ollivander. So if you're familiar with that, he was in Crime and Punishment. Hellboy as Trevor Broom. Bruttenholm. <laughs> He was in the Skeleton Key, V for Vendetta as Adam Sutler. 
Oh, here's a film that's actually really interesting. It's not quite a horror, but it kind of has some horror elements. Is a film called Perfume, the story of a murderer. He was the narrator for that film. The reason I want to bring it up, because it kind of ties into some music, too, because I'm sure you're a fan of them, but Nirvana has a song called Scentless Apprentice. Now, Scentless Apprentice is not only a book, but it's like I said, a song that Nirvana wrote. I believe it was based off the lyrics of all three gentlemen, Cobain and Novoselic and Dave Grohl. But a, kind of a heavy film, man. It's a really interesting topic. I you know I'm kind of nerding out, but... It's pretty dope, man. I think you should check it out. I think you'd like it. All right, so he, he was also in Hellboy 2, Professor Broom. He was in The Limits of Control. I mean, Hellboy's kind of daddy. Yeah, dude. John Hurt was Hellboy's daddy. A Warhammer film, Ultramarines. He voiced Brother Karnak. I mean, we could talk about him all day long. Yeah, don't talk to me about the Ultramarines. We're going to pretend that didn't exist. <laughs> but, yeah, unfortunately, Mr. Hurt has passed away. And it wasn't too long ago, but he's just a very prominent figure in British film. And just in film in general, you've probably seen him in television series, all kinds of neat shit. Next person I want to talk about, because we have Bilbo Baggins Ooh, in this film. <laughs> the next person? This gentleman, this sir. Yeah. Exactly. That's a good point. This right. next person, or is he a hobbit? Hmm. We'll find out. Or so, is he da- our father, Vito Cornelius, from The Fifth Element? He is. That's probably where I recognize that's him most from. That's probably the first place I would have recognized him. All right. So we're talking about Sir Ian Holm Cuthbert. Right? And now this gentleman, thank goodness he's still around, but some of his film work is unbelievable. So I should mention he has one of the best names in film because he borrows it with another awesome character but his character's name is ash and when you start looking at some of his body of work like it's pretty impressive right so i'll go back a little bit he started back in the 60s he played richard III in the bbc production of the war of the roses like i said he did a lot of theatrical work he started winning tony awards for uh, the homecoming And then he started getting into films, and this is probably one of the major roles that he plays. And then he started doing things like Chariots of Fire. You might have seen him in Time Bandits, which is kind of a neat film. Greystroke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. 78 Slay Miz. Yeah. Now here's something cool, because this goes back to the Chud episode once again. We mentioned that Terry Greist, she was, I think her second film you had mentioned, right, was Brazil. Now, Mr. Holm was also... In Brazil, which I thought was really cool. The Mel Gibson Hamlet. He was Polonius. Yeah. I really like the Mel Gibson Hamlet. Just going to throw that out there. It's not bad. (laughs) Not bad at all. He was in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as Baron Frankenstein. Existence with Cronenberg. Which is really cool. We've mentioned Cronenberg several times now on the show. From Hell as Sir William Gull. I remember that film. That's actually really good. And then, of course, he started getting in with Peter Jackson as Bilbo Baggins. I mean... I can not. And he did a voice in Ratatouille. Yeah, I actually liked that film. I went and seen it in theater. The person I went with wasn't too impressed, but I was like, it's a cartoon, what do you expect? He was Skinner. Yeah. There was another film he did, I recognize him too from, was The, the Aviator, which is a really good film. Nicholas Cage film, Lord of War? Oh, Lord of War is a good movie. You know, that is a really good film, man. So, this go off a complete tangent. That's for okay, a second, that's what we do sometimes. We've mentioned Lord of War a couple times just because of people being in it. And every time I forget to tell this story, I've been lucky enough to have very little stolen from me over the course of my lifetime. Right. One of the things I had stolen was my fucking copy of Lord of War. Oh, damn. But the weirdest part was it was like my first semester, 
my first like day of my first semester back at college of my sophomore year. I was getting my shit up and running into people I knew and got sidetracked and this and that and had moved some shit into my room, but not all of it, had some down in my truck. And so I wasn't always in my room anyway, left it unlocked. Somebody went in and stole a couple DVD cases I had. They stole Lord of War and they stole... I think Saw 2 and my $5 Walmart aviators. Damn. Sitting right next to the shit that they took was a fucking giant fucking CD, you know, like the old school with just thousands of dollars (laughs) worth of CDs in there. I went for the movies. (laughs) And a brand new fucking computer still in the box. Damn. $5 $5 Walmart aviators, two DVDs that I picked up, two for $5 at a fucking pawn shop. <laughs> That's funny, man. I don't know. They just had different intentions, I suppose. <laughs> That's weird. I never have replaced my Lord of War. I need to get around to that. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> uh, but no, it's still a good film. So recommended. Okay, so with Mr. Holm, we also have a Mr. Yafit Koto. He plays Parker. And I started looking back at some of his filmography, and it's like... Running Man. Yeah. That was like very the first one. I got a long story I'm not going to share quite yet, but yeah, I do remember seeing him in Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger. He also portrayed the main villain, Dr. Kananga, and Mr. Big and James Bond's Live and Let Die from 1973. He also appeared in a Robert De Niro film, which is kind of... It's not the best one ever. It's a comedy thriller called Midnight Run. He plays Agent Alonzo Mosley. But then you start getting more into his career, and he's got some really cool films. I do want to kind of mention a little bit. Freddy's Dead. Yeah, that's exactly the one I wanted to mention. Because, I mean, we've done, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. It's kind of neat that he did get into the final nightmare. He was in some pretty cool television series, actually, is what I wanted to mention. He was in a lot of westerns, too. Daniel Boone, Gunsmoke. He was in Roots, if you've seen that. He was in Homicide. That's probably his most notable role because he played Lieutenant Al Giardello from uh, 1993 to 2000, and he was nominated for an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Actor in a Drama Series in the late 90s, from 96 through 99. So, I mean, he was recognized for his body of work. Like I said, he does play Parker. There's two other people I should mention. We mentioned a xenomorph. The person who played the xenomorph is his only appearance, and it was interesting how this person was discovered, too, because I believe he was noticed at a, he was either a bar or like a cafe, because of his tall, slender figure, mm-hmm. a Nigerian, his name is Balaj Bodejo, he plays the alien in this film, his only appearance, and I know he didn't have a very long life either, and I would imagine probably has to do with his height, because he's like seven foot one or some shit. Sickle cell. Oh, was it Sickle? Yeah, mm-hmm. it was the other killer. 39. Damn. Yeah, so unfortunately he passed at a very young age. But that was kind of interesting because... But he was 7'2". Wow, 7'2". Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm 5'9", for reference. <laughs> uh, I've known a guy that I believe was half Nigerian and was 7'1". And so Jeez, I can attest man. that that's a tall, lanky oh, yeah, motherfucker. <laughs> I've played basketball with some guys that are like 6'11". Close to seven feet tall, and it's <laughs> monsters. But anywho, he does play that part, and Helen Horton, she voices Mother. Mm. So that kind of rounds out the cast, the crew. We gave a synopsis. Time for warnings. Warnings. A little bit of gore. Definitely some gore. Definitely um, language. 
pseudo-sexual imagery. I would agree with that. Oh, plus there's a couple scenes where you can see like Playboy titties up in yeah, the background. Yeah, you certainly so. can. I would say this, if you have issues with, I don't know, maybe like strobe lights and shaky oh, cameras mm-hmm. and shit like that, it's probably make you a little uneasy. It does have moments of that. But aside but, from that, that's about yeah. it. I mean, it's set in space. Otherwise, yeah, just terror in space. Basically. In space. Space. So with that, that's our cast and crew, our synopsis, our warnings. Yeah, I think that's it. Let's. Is it uh, time to squeal? Let's squeal. God, what's happening to me? God, where am I? Why am I hearing these things? Oh God, what? What's going on? Oh Jesus, come on! Oh my God, what's what's going on? Where where am I? Oh gee, why why? Come on, somebody, somebody! Ah, come on, come on, come on, come on, somebody! Sir, come on, somebody, somebody's there. Somebody's got to be there. I will shock you. Come on, sir, come on, sir, you must listen to me. Sir, I only have one question. How does that make you squeal? You know what time it is, Tyler? Oh, this time I'm squealing. Hmm. Squealing in space. You know, we really did not intend to do almost like a month in space. I started thinking about (laughs) some of the films we've done recently, and it is kind of funny, because up to this point, we really haven't covered a lot of sci-fi horror, I mean, getting into this year. And then out of the blue, we kind of did three of them. Event Horizon, yeah. Jason, Jason X. Jason X, which I just mentioned to you. Today is the day that it came out. So this is the anniversary. What, what year did it come Two, out? What did you say, 2001? Two, Two, something like that. 2002. Two, I think it is, yeah. So this is like the 16th anniversary 16th, of Jason X. 16th, yeah. Sweet 16. Sweet 16, Jason X. <laughs> Going to give it to us. <laughs> now but, let's see. Alien. How yeah. does it make me squeal? First off, I saw this series out of order. I'm not quite sure how I saw this. As far as the series goes, I can't remember. Because I mean, what? We've already established this came out in 79. Like, I wasn't born until 87. Like, they've been around well before me. Even in my early upbringing, I remember seeing bits and pieces of it, but not enough to remember it. Like, you know, all the way through. I saw Aliens first, and then I probably saw... Three? Uh, maybe not. I saw Aliens. Mm-hmm. Then I saw Resurrection. Or... Winona? Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, that one. Then I saw this one. Then I saw three. Okay. So yeah, you kind of went... <laughs> I bounced all the fuck You did, around. man. That's all right. Honestly, like, I can't remember how I've and seen bef- these films in order. And before I saw any of them, I saw The End of Spaceballs. You know, I'm probably more familiar with Spaceballs <laughs> growing up than I was with the actual franchise. And so it was finally where I was like, oh, oh. That's where that's from. And it's John Hurt. Oh, yeah. that's clever. Way to go, guys. That was meta. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. It yeah. wasn't until a lot later that I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't just a parody. It was him. It was actually him. Yeah, and it was really cool, man. Because even without knowing it was him, like, and without having seen this first one, it was so iconic that it's not like I didn't know the fucking chestburster scene. Yeah. You could not help it but know that reference. Oh, okay. And so with that, before we get too much further into this movie, I would like to reference my synopsis very quickly. Okay. As we pointed out, this movie has been gone over many times. 
many, many times. Oh, yeah. By some very, very intellectual people, and it's been ripped apart. And certain viewpoints have been corroborated by the writer. And so if you have never viewed Alien in this way before, because it's easy not to. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. But one of the major kind of themes of this movie is that it's sexual violence towards men. Most definitely. And the chestburster is what reminded me is because the chestburster kind of looks like a fucking dildo popping up the goddamn John Hurt. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it's funny because there are cast members, Veronica Cartwright in particular, who was talking about the set design that Giger came up with. And she's like, it's basically like walking around looking at penises and vaginas everywhere. <laughs> Which, like I visceral. said, if you want to look up his work, not safe for work. That's basically... So, Necronom 4, if we look at it, we see that the alien head is basically oh, man, a big dick. old dick, yeah. And it's However, holding... it also strangely looks almost exactly like the finished alien that we got. It really does. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> come on. But it's like a biomechanical alien creature with a dick for a head whose body turns into a giant dick who he seems to be very loosely jerking off. That's what it looks like, yeah. Damn. And that's what you're going to see from Giger all day long. I don't think he makes any bones about it either. No, 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 no. No puns. (laughs) So I would say that it's very easy to not notice all the sexual themes in this movie, because it's just a very, like, the atmosphere is so well done. Gosh, is it? There's just so many just beautiful shots. It's like spaceship porn. It is. Here's something interesting about that, too, is because Ridley Scott wanted to kind of use some of the shots that Space Odyssey 2001 had done, like some of the compartmentalization, just the way that it functions, the, the actual inside interiors of it. So that's kind of interesting because then it gets like, you're right, very atmospheric. The tension gets ratcheted up by the scores beautifully done. Even I think even in the beginning, like the title sequence, when you get introduced, just the cast and characters you get the alien that finally gets blotted out but the music itself kind of sets the tone before you even see a shot of any of the crew mm-hmm. yeah which i thought was kind of neat but if you've never seen the imagery before oh yeah giger Phew. or not just giger but realized how it's being used in this movie good point i yeah. mean the alien is kind of like if chicks suddenly grew their own version of dicks <laughs> yeah that were highly weaponized and then this whole movie is playing on male rape from like the face hugger yeah inseminating to the violent penetration from the second mouth and like yeah i mean that's what it's doing with on a head that like so like think so, oh my god this is going to get really weird for a second that's all right. but like that's what we do but like <laughs> it's like this phallicized femininity because you have you know, like with a chick, you would have two mouths, two lips, two right. sets of lips. Makes sense, yeah. You have two mouths on the end of a giant penis. Yeah. That's extremely deadly. <laughs> it's like a vagina was turned into an apex predator yeah. while also becoming a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect weapon. In order to rape dudes. Yeah. Just think about that, guys. And I want to point out, ooh, this is going to get really weird, too. Because I don't know if it was done on purpose or not with the sexual overtones of this entire movie. But all the dudes seem to have been attacked by the mouth. Mm-hmm. When it kills not Ripley. I can't think of her name. I'm Cartwright. Too stoned. Yeah. Veronica Cartwright. She seems to be killed with the tail. 
I noticed that, yeah. And it seemed to start up the leg. I think there's a film that probably borrowed that imagery and went a little bit further with it. In Jacob's Ladder, there's a scene that's very similar to that, but it goes a little bit further than what Alien did. But I think that just even like ups the rape factor of oh, the yeah. Alien even more. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it doesn't discriminate when it comes to... Uh, to sex- rape. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get it regardless. <laughs> X who and give it to you. That's right. <laughs> Xenomorph. Xenomorph. <laughs> yeah, exactly, dude. Damn. But that's a good point because that is exactly what happens when you look at what happens to most of all of these characters, with the exception, of course, to Ripley. And so, like, there's other sources that you can read into how all that imagery is used a lot more. Yeah, we're no specialists we're in that category. We're definitely not <laughs> that category. specialists, and we're not the first ones to point that out. But I did very much want to bring it to the forefront because it's something I do feel is easy to miss. Yeah, exactly, if you're not really looking and paying attention to it. It's something easy to miss because of how well this movie is done. I totally agree with that. And I think how how well the story yeah. and the way it's presented all works to just heighten the tension no matter what's going on. That's a good way of looking at it too. I think for a lot of the audience, and that, this is no discredit to anybody in particular, but when you look at a film a little bit more analytically and you you know critique it, I think you start noticing themes like that a little bit more obviously. Whereas I think the casual viewer probably just see it as more for what it is like a sci-fi horror. And it makes it really interesting to rewatch the movie with that in mind. <laughs> it does, yeah, it does. And then knowing Giger and a lot of his works, you just mentioned Not Safe for Work. Yeah. It starts to become a little bit more obvious. That's the other thing. I guess if you get turned on by xenomorphs, maybe go check out Giger's work. Yeah. <laughs> you might be into that. That gets into kind of like cyberpunk kind of stuff. We keep bringing up Giger too, and he wasn't the only artist to influence Bannon and this movie. There was three that Bannon had in mind when he was writing this and making all the first designs, because there's a lot of stuff to read about this movie. There's a lot about this movie that's documented. But it's really cool, really neat shit, yeah. And the thing that jumped out to me as I was trying to do my research and realizing that I'm not ever going to be able to bring anything new, but there was such a sense of care from the writers Mm -hmm. in the sense that he seemed to put in a lot of work on it, like had initial designs come up with three artists in particular, Giger, Chris Foss, who if you look at Foss's work, you can definitely see influence oh, on the, the ships. The ship itself, yeah. Oh yeah, even the alien ship itself, yeah. And Jean Girard. Yeah, which I think he consulted and had them all, all three of those guys on board with this project. And you can definitely see some of the influence there too. Oh, no doubt. Even just briefly wow. looking over their stuff. Yeah, it's really cool. It's kind of neat to see that, too, the visual conceptions of a lot of this film, you know, from the sets to the planets to the creatures themselves. But truly the most memorable, well, maybe not the most memorable things, because one of the things I realized when I was watching through this is the interior spacecraft and the way it all looks in this movie and the things that inspired is kind of the default like way spaceships look in my head. Yeah, that makes like, sense. Like if like a book or something weren't to doesn't give a very like extremely detailed account of the surroundings, mm-hmm. then this is just kind of the default. The way this movie looks is kind of the default way that spaceships look in my head. You know what I find interesting too. Well, I'm glad you bring this point up. When I think of like submarines and naval ships and things like that it kind of has the same like design 
because they are kind of based off each other. From what I understand with this film, the ship itself too was like some of the stuff was designed of like bombers and some uh, submarines and shit like that. So it makes sense. They want to kind of use an authenticity that gives it back to the audience too. Like you want to feel like, yeah, you can relate to some of that stuff. And speaking of some of the inspirations, you mentioned the fact that some of it was directly designed on like the B-17 bombers and stuff. Yeah. The other thing I really liked running into when trying to research this movie was the fact that Dan O'Bannon was extremely vocal about where he paid homage and fucking just ripped shit off from. <laughs> yeah. I like when people do that because it's neat things that you can see. Yeah. Everything's a remix anyway. At this point, almost every idea has been come up with before. Exactly. It's just how you incorporate you turn it, it yeah. and make people care about it. And, I mean, it's not like you only have like three pieces to play with. When I mean every idea has been done before, that's still a pool of like a million pieces. Oh, yeah. But not every story can have all million. You just have to reach in there and pull out a few and see how they all fit together. Yeah. Hopefully make it successful. Anyway, going off. He was very open, completely said, I didn't steal Alien from anybody. I stole it from everybody. <laughs> nice. Uh, the Thing from Another World, 1951, inspired the idea of professional men being pursued by a deadly alien creature through a claustrophobic environment. Forbidden Planet from 56 gave O'Bannon the idea of a ship being warned not to land, and then the crew being killed one by one by a mysterious creature when they defy the warning. Planet of the Vampires, 1965, contains a scene in which the heroes discover a giant alien skeleton, which influences the discovery of the space jockey. Yeah, exactly. He's also noted the influence of Junkyard, a short story by Clifford Samak, in which a crew lands on an asteroid and discovers a chamber full of eggs. And he's cited as influences Strange Relations by Philippe Jose Farmer. Philip Jose Farmer? I don't know. Which covers alien reproduction in various EC comics, horror titles, carrying stories in which monsters eat their way out of people. Huh. And they would also pitch it as Jaws in Space, which is not far off as well. Yeah. We've mentioned that before, too, with, what was it, Event Horizon? I think, like, some of the taglines, like, this is mixed with that, and blah, 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 is mixed with that. But, oh, yeah, yeah, I can see that now. So that definitely, once you hear all of those pieces, that definitely oh, lays yeah. the framework for this movie. Well, I think with any artist, whether it's music, whether it's visual art, film art, you can't help but draw back on your influences. It's going to come out whether you're doing it you know, consciously or subconsciously. You just can't help it. We're, we're all kind of products of our environment and, you know, what struck a chord with us growing up and through our lives so it makes sense and so because i ended up watching all these things in a strange order mm -hmm. it's weird because i know that this movie influenced some of the stuff later but i think of them in the opposite order like when i watched this i kept thinking of red dwarf rather than the fact that this probably influenced red dwarf <laughs> yeah Though now I feel like I do have to look up the history of Red Dwarf and see how much it was influenced by, by Alien. Yeah. Red Dwarf is a British sci-fi comedy from the late 80s through the 90s. And there's a couple seasons coming out very soon. Mm. One that just came out a couple of years ago that's actually it's fucking brilliant. But it was a deep space mining vessel. <laughs> Oh, God, there were some weird similarities that I thought popped up, but the interior of the ship looks a lot the same. I mean, too much of a coincidence. Yeah, giant fucking vessel, but it only can take place in a small portion of it. 
But the importance of the cat is what jumped out to me. Because in Red Dwarf, the entire story is sort of set up because Dave Lister sneaks his cat Frankenstein on board. (laughs) That's funny. They find out that he snuck something on board, but they can't find the cat itself, and he won't give it up. So as punishment, he gets put in the cryopod. (laughs) It's basically like when we get to the next base, we'll unthaw you in this like 72 days, or I can't remember the exact length of time, but... This time that you're in there, it's going to go by in an instant for you, but you're unpaid for it. Uh, yeah, that's his punishment. Yeah. That's funny. He's in the cryopod without pay till the next base or whatever. And when that happens, something goes wrong, then Tire Crew gets killed. The uh, <laughs> It wakes up much later, probably, yeah. Three million years later, <laughs> oh when the, the ship's supercomputer decides that it, you know it, the radiation levels have lowered enough that he can come out into certain areas wow. of the ship. Wow, that's pretty gnarly. Um, his cat was pregnant and had babies that evolved upon a radioactive starship designed for humans. And so there's like a humanoid cat on board. Oh, that's fucking hilarious. There's like a hologram of his dead roommate. That's awesome. I'll have to check that out. It sounds gnarly. It's fucking, it's fantastic. But I kept thinking about of like, they're both mining. Well, the red dwarf is a mining ship itself. Okay. But it's so big because of all the shit that it's collecting. Makes sense. Yeah. Alien was a tug full of mind ore. Yep, exactly. Or hauling mind ore. That's what it was doing, yeah. Both have cats leading to part of the beginning of the downfall. Yeah. I was going to bring that up about the cat, right? Because <laughs> that is like a standout moment in this film. For And poor Harry Dean. Oh my gosh, man. Yeah. So, I want to talk about this cat for a minute. We're talking about Jones the cat. So... When the whole crew, they discover that the fucking alien's loose in the ship. They start going after it. We get Ripley, Brett, and Parker. Parker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They get that reading. It's the cat. The cat gets loose. Stanton, he's the first one that gets abducted from the xenomorph. And then, you're right, that's the beginning of the downfall. And then even towards the end of the film, it's funny how Ripley leaves the the cat, goes back for the cat. It's a back and forth of the cat. The beginning of the downfall is fucking hurt getting in the face to begin with. Oh, gosh. That's another thing, too. It's like, maybe that's a play on words, too. Like, with curiosity kill the cat. Yeah. The importance of the cat. The fact that the cat was around. Oh, Jonesy. The use of the cryo. It all just sort of reminded me of Red Dwarf, even though. Now I'm wondering if Red Dwarf maybe took a couple cues from Alien. It wouldn't be out of the thought, you know? The other thing that this made me think of that I hadn't thought of in a long time, there was a period of time when I was in college when I was reading a lot of fucking webcomics. One of my favorites was one called VG Cats. One of my favorite early VG Cats is based on Alien. (laughs) And points out, once again, some of the sexual overtones of this movie. I'll bring this up real quick. VG Cats 114, that's saying a mouthful, written by Scott Ramsemeyer. I do not know if I'm saying that right, but... <laughs> You're trying. Copyright way... See, 2004. That's a long time ago, right? Yeah. VG for video game cats. Okay. Bunch of anthropomorphic cats talking back and forth. You know, Eris, I've been thinking. I doubt that, but go on. <laughs> it's about those alien face huggers. They clamp to your face and implant their babies into your stomach, right? Yeah. Why? Well, wouldn't that mean they stick their, you know, down your throat? <laughs> oh, God! They're raping your face? That's horrible. I tell you, as if killing you isn't bad enough, 
You also get a face full of alien wing long. <laughs> then he gets face huggered. Yep. <laughs> Sploosh, squick. Yeah. And then you have the, the face hugger yeah. smoking a cigarette. <laughs> that is fucking hilarious. Look at the face he has. To... <laughs> that was on like their t-shirts for a That's long time. Awesome. Like face full of alien wing wong was a big thing for the VG Cats fandom. <laughs> That's awesome, dude. That's the first thing I think of when I think of a face hugger is fucking faceful alien wing wong. <laughs> alien wing wong. That's good, dude. That's really good. Alright, so I, I do want to talk a little bit about the discovery. Right? They mm-hmm. land on the planetoid, they're getting these signals. They start going inside that alien spacecraft. That's John Hurt's character, Dallas, played by Scarrett, and Cartwright's character. <laughs> and one of the cool things I liked about it, you know, he goes down into the hole, he finds all those egg pods, and it has this little layer of, like, this mist he mentions. It makes noise or it warns, Reacts, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. So that laser was borrowed from a band from uh, the time period. Uh, the Who? The Who, yeah. Apparently they were doing some, I think, testing for those lasers for, like, an upcoming tour they were having, and they were on the soundstage next to where this was being filmed. So yeah, we have to just borrow that from yeah. them, which yeah. I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, so that's these, where that comes from. Use lasers. Yeah, but you're right. The cool thing is how they were using practical effects is what I want to kind of get at with a lot of the aliens themselves. Even the beginning with the egg where it comes out of the hatch, sticks to his face and stuff like that. Apparently, when they were filming inside of it, it was actually Ridley Scott's hand inside like rubber gloves, just giving the effect that it's moving inside mm-hmm. of the egg itself. Yeah, and then. You know, they were using, like, intestines of sheep and all kinds of crazy shit, right? Oh, so much of this movie looks so good. Yeah. Uh, the ship models are fucking incredible. They're beautiful. I think there's, like, three different models ranging from kind of small to rather large. <laughs> yeah, I think there was, like, a 58-foot leg they were using for when they get out of the ship. And this is what I was reading that I thought was kind of neat was that Ridley Scott used two of his young sons and... The DP used his son to give it a more larger effect because he said when they had the actual actors outside, it just didn't look proportionally right. They needed to be tinier to give that larger effect. Mm-hmm. So that's what they did. They put their kids in miniature spacesuits and said, during some of it because it was so heavy and they couldn't breathe inside those fucking things. They were collapsing. So <laughs> it's like, that's kind of intensive, but it does give the effect, man. I mean, a lot of the proportions are really cool. You see how massive the ship is. You see how massive the alien ship is the design is really fucking gnarly but just the fact that they were willing to go in there and then they fucked up man fuck and you know if they would have just listened to ripley from the get-go well even cartwright's character she's like we shouldn't be here we just need to go back then one would listen to the women which kind of gives a little bit more credence to the fact that these guys are getting face fucked yeah (laughs) that definitely penetrated yeah it's kind of God, a neat Ridley's subject to explore. Such a badass. Yeah, no, Weaver's really awesome, man. I think a lot of the characters. I even liked Koto's character. Uh, I was mentioning Parker. Like toward the end of the film, he becomes a little bit more vocal in terms of how they're going to battle and you know, deal with this fucking alien. Like for a lot of it, he just wants his money. He and Stan, they just want their fucking money, man. Yeah, you know they don't want to get dicked. So one of the other big differences watching it this time for the podcast yeah is i realized that before it's been a while since i've seen this one it has been uh, the one that i've seen probably most often is aliens yeah i would agree with that followed very closely unfortunately by resurrection yeah which is not the best one in the series 
I mean, this is the one I've seen the least. I, you know, I think between this one and Aliens, I think, are the ones I've seen the most. And so, and not having seen this till the third, you know, that I've seen. Anyway, it had been a while. It yeah. had been a while. When I'd seen this before was before I had started reading H.P. Lovecraft. Oh. Now that I've seen this, this movie is fucking Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. Not necessarily with, like, the design of the creature, but the pacing is Lovecraftian. Even Ash's turn is just oh, a man. technological way of doing somebody being driven to madness yeah. in a Lovecraft story. That's a good way of looking at that, too. Because that is a moment that kind of springs on you, too. Like, you're like, oh, shit, this fucking dude is an android. So, first off, a lot of people will point out that this movie, especially the first half of it, plays its pacing a lot like Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Okay. And in fact, if they would have been able to go with the original version and have like a pyramid within the structure that they find and stuff, it would have been even more at the Mountains of Madness. Yeah, that makes sense. And like Giger signed on because he thought that the script was extremely Lovecraftian. And Lovecraft was a huge influence to, for him, mm-hmm. with like a few collections of his artwork being named after the Necronomicon, yeah. that sort of yeah, thing. Exactly. But beyond that, it's not uncommon in Lovecraft stories for either the narrator or somebody close to the narrator to be driven mad by the events of the story or by coming into some sort of knowledge. Yeah. In this movie, that role is filled by Ash. The knowledge that he runs into is the existence of the creature. So his subroute, instead of being driven mad... He's got to get rid of the fucking... His alternate... He's like, oh, that fulfills you know, his order. Like, yeah. If I wouldn't ran into this, nobody would have had a fucking problem. But I ran into this, so now I have to execute these particular orders. That's the orders, exactly. And that's what we find out a little bit later on. There's a special order, a 937. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and then it spells it all out but it's good uh, yeah I didn't... and so it immediately reminded me of like the rats in the walls in which one of the characters upon finding out upon his lineage and delving deep into the underground of his familial estate and coming upon the ruins of like an old roman cult and that knowledge and just being in that place drive him to madness mm-hmm. and cannibalism, and he's institutionalized wow. by the end of the story, without ever actually running into a physical antagonist. Hmm. The That's knowledge itself, yeah. as he uncovers more and more information, drives him mad and changes him into the antagonist by the end of the story. Yeah. And Ash sort of filled that role for me, and it felt very yeah. Lovecraftian, especially in just the drawn-outness of this movie, but not in a way where it felt too long. It was done so lovingly by Ridley Scott. You're right. It wasn't a long, drawn-out process. It was kind of quick. It was almost abrupt, but it was straight and to the point. Like, you knew exactly what, <laughs> why he was there, what happened to him. And you're right, the information, the priority was set, perfect execution. And then from that point on, that's where you get the cat once again. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like now you're kind of, you've got literally the crew that's it's cut in half at that point. Dallas is gone. Brett is gone. You've got Ripley's left. Veronica Cartwright, she's left. And Parker's left because we just outed the android, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But yeah, with the cat, 
that was the, like the second half of that last part of the film. I felt like Ripley, she was trying to carry out like a certain thing to get the shuttle prepared, and they were off getting the coolant. And she starts hearing the cat meow, and that <laughs> sets off another series of events. But I thought it was kind of neat, too. It's like if she hadn't gone after the cat, would she have died with the rest? Oh, and also with the rats on the walls, the protagonist's cat actually plays a big... <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to repeat the name of the cat, much like you're not going to repeat oh, the name of uh, nope. the short story that... <laughs> no, there's two of them. We're not. I mean, there's definitely not one. So the, we're talking about the ships, the names that they're based off of. They're based off two novels from the early 1900s. Yeah. The, the one that's named Narcissus. And the Narcissus. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not going to mention that one. The Narcissus <laughs> is a much shortened form of the... Yeah, we're not going to say it. <laughs> we ain't even going to go there. But... Yeah, what that did. You can look it up. Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, I I like that, what you're talking about with the Lovecrafting thing, because it makes sense when you start looking at the characters. And even knowing, like, the films that we've done prior with Event Horizon that comes to mind a lot, I can really see where that film borrowed so much from Alien. (laughs) I mean, even down to, like, some of the fucking scenes. But this unraveling of the madness itself, too, with Sam Neill's character. I mean, his was a little bit more darker, of course, but they still had that moment of unraveling. Once again, Event Horizon and this movie both do right. If you're going to be stuck out in the confines of a spaceship in space, they both explored their surroundings. Yeah, they established those for you. And established all the places you're going to be. Take note, Jason X, and anywhere (laughs) else that wants to be set out in space. Watching this film, particularly knowing that those films have borrowed from this film... Or just how to establish tension in a space. Yeah. Establish it first. But no, it made me appreciate the films that do it right, like Event Horizon, of course, in this. But then with Jason X, you're just kind of thrown into it. There's times for the unknown. Yeah. Including unknown space. Happens, yeah. Like when they go into the alien ship where they run into the space jockey. Exactly. The whole idea is the whole place is unknown. But they have to have a home before that. Right. Yeah, you just don't get thrust into it. Mm-hmm. So what I was going to get with that, too, is just neat to see the influences that we've done with the prior films. And, you know, I think Event Horizon more so than Jason X, just for obvious reasons. But it's kind of neat to see those, the homages that they were paying back to Alien. Wow, we already talked about the Harry Dean Stanton getting killed scene because of the cat. And I just completely, (laughs) because of my terrible handwriting, I completely missed a note that I made specifically about that scene. With all the sexual overtones of this movie, when Harry Dean Stanton finds the shed alien skin, Mm -hmm. how is it just not straight up used condom? Well, (laughs) I think they use a lot of latex for a lot of that, too. And a lot of KY jelly to make the aliens slimy. I mean, so there's a lot of that going on in this film. This was a set that was just filled with... Just KY slathered dicks and pussies. (laughs) Yeah. There's even one moment in particular, because it's kind of, I mean, he's alluding to it, but you know what he's talking about, is right before John Hurt, his character has the stomach burst or chest burst, where they're eating, and he's like, I'd like to be eating something else. Oh, yeah, Yafikoto. (laughs) Yeah. Like, damn. He spelled it out. But there was apparently... They wanted to write in some illusions like, this is what 
normal crew do when they're out months, years at a time with each other. I mean, there's going to be... The crew all felt so genuine. They all felt like people I grew up with in my hometown. I thought it was kind of neat, too, the way that they cast this. Because none of this was like... None of these people are like models. They're not... You know, what I mean by that is like... They're not typically what you would see in a, a film that has an ensemble cast. Like, you're looking for pretty characters. These are average Joe characters that everybody can relate to. Most of these people well established in their careers at this point, with the exception of like maybe they look uh, like you could find them all at like a Weaver. fucking truck stop. Yeah, and that's just the authenticity. Like Eating these, at like a truck stop diner. Yeah, and I like the moments that they have with each other, like the dinner scenes, even their back and forth banter with each other. I believe it was, it might have been Koto. Like it was either him or Stanton, where <laughs> the character was trying to be like really mean and kind of nasty towards weaver ripley but he was like i didn't really like it because like she's really nice and <laughs> you know it's kind of hard but they we're trying to build certain tension within the characters is what i'm getting at with that too so it was kind of neat man the authenticity of the cast is great all right so we keep going back to the cat and i ended up having to make a note <laughs> we know from the rest of the series that the xenomorphs kind of take on some of the traits of what they burst out of yeah because we get, like, the dog xenomorph in one of the later ones and shit. How more fucked would they have been if the alien would have got the fucking cat straight off? That would have been really fucked. Dude, think of how fucking... Stealthy. Dude, alien cat? Oh, shit. Yeah. Fucking deadly shit. Yeah. That's the one ship I would not want to be on. Dude, I already don't want to piss off my cat. Yeah. He's not a xenomorph. He's just a 16-pound fucking two-year-old dingbat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but no, he could fuck him. my world up if he wanted to. Those fucking claws? Yeah. He could fuck my world up if he wanted to. And then you put it in a xenomorph. No Yeah, good, we're so. fucked. We're all fucked. Dude, Ripley wouldn't have made it out. No, I'm sorry. She would not have. I thought it was kind of neat seeing that. <laughs> the ending, too. Is like I didn't remember it. But I was like, that's kind of neat. Getting shot out of the thrusters. Oh, yeah. She was I wearing did. those little panties. <laughs> like the, the iconic. <laughs> yeah. That was the one thing where seeing this one after I'd seen some of the later ones, I was like, I kind of wish that they would have never shown me a full body alien shot in this entire movie. Yeah. The whole first two thirds, three quarters, yeah. where all you get is like little flashes of like, really close in on his face or just like the way he burst out on Dallas and it's like just it's the super upper quick. body super yeah. quick all of those were so crazy so effective when you get to see the full body alien and you can really kind of tell it's a tall linky guy yeah, yeah, yeah I know what you mean <laughs> there is certain moments where that does you can't help but notice it tall linky guy in a suit yeah I, I mean if we're going to be a little critical of this film <laughs> It's not a perfect. I mean, no film is perfect. No, no. but it's fucking damn Except near for the perfect. Princess Bride. Yeah, <laughs> Princess Bride is perfect. That's it's about as close as you're going to get to perfection, right? But no it, other film is perfect. No, but what I'm getting at is it has its flaws, and I think even some of the script, not necessarily the script, which is some of the lines are kind of like they weren't done in very many takes. I don't believe the way that they deliver them. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of felt that way about some of Cartwright's. Yeah, she, she gets better as she goes takes. on yeah. and gets more freaked out. Which is 
kind of interesting because uh, her pedigree, she wasn't a lot of shit yeah. up to this point. The more freaked out she gets, the better she gets in this movie. But I, towards the beginning, I, totally I was a little... Mm, She's a little whiny. Scarrett didn't really sell me either in a couple scenes. Yeah. But most Much time, later yeah. on, yeah, when they start to develop their character, I believe, a little bit further. Yeah, you, you get a little bit more acquainted. One scene we should definitely talk about, and we've alluded to it several times, and it's the chestburster scene and how they pull that off, which is kind of neat. So from what I understood, I watched a little the making of the scene, and what they wanted to do with the cast was not really show the people outside of John Hurt how they were going to pull that off. They just kind of had a basic idea of that we're going to be in this room, the scene's going to happen. They didn't realize all the gore and effects that went into it. So going to that scene, I was talking about some of the design and shit like that. The major design for that was, I talked to you about it, was the Francis Bacon triptych from 1944, three studies of figures at the base of a crucifixion. And it shows kind of the design of it. So they based it, Giger, you know, based that concept off of Francis Bacon's work. They got the creature designed. They had a puppeteer that was underneath the <laughs> table. It just had it kind of like on a stick. Mm-hmm. And so the intention was they had John Hurt, just his head, where it was visible on his hands coming through the table. They had him in just a chair, and they built that torso. And they were having issues a little bit at first because it wasn't bursting through the T-shirt, so they made a little slit. And I think they stuffed it with, like, intestines and just guts and just nasty shit, like six gallons of blood at a time they would squirt. So long story short, they brought the crew in. They were going to do it in one take. You get a genuine reaction because they did not anticipate the blood the being squirted out yeah. at them. So with Veronica Cartwright, <laughs> you see her get like the splat, almost in Jason X kind of. Right. Yeah, the girl, yeah. she didn't expect it. She got she got in the got eye. the splooge in the eye. And during that scene, during that cut, Cartwright was like overwhelmed, and she like fucking went over backwards, <laughs> and she was like a little livid <laughs> about that. But she went on to later talk about it. She thought it was kind of humorous in hindsight. But that's a genuine reaction shot in that scene. And even the like the catapulting of the, the creature off the table, they had apparently like cut a thin line for the puppeteer just to kind of run a string through the back end of the tail and zip mm-hmm. it out. Yeah, that was kind of neat. So a lot of the practical effects, I wish a lot more films would take note. Like you don't necessarily have to have a lot of CGI oh my to, God, to the do ship it models right. Are so good. Yeah, oh I mean even God. the mo- yeah the models themselves are fucking good. I mean of course for that time period you can kind of see, you know. But for that time period, man, it's it's brilliant. Oh, what's not? It's good. brilliant today now. What's not good is Ian Holmes' fake head uh, after <laughs> she knocks it over. Yeah, I know what you mean. And then she holds it in place, and then it it's him. <laughs> No, that you put at, that, and then yeah, at the, yeah. At the very end, yeah, when she yeah. knocks it over, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. To like, oh my god, I could make a paper mache head that looks like that. Here's something I do like about that, though. I do need to go and watch this shit in series now, in terms of the franchise. But as his face is being incinerated when Parker uses it, some of that coating after the flesh melts off, it's like, hold on, that kind of looks like. Some of that shit from Prometheus, and oh, it's like maybe that's why I need to start watching that stuff just to kind of see where they go with it now because I haven't seen Covenant. I really need to watch Prometheus. I haven't again. watched Covenant. I need to rewatch Prometheus. I actually really liked Prometheus. It got a lot of hate in a lot of places. I do agree. Why didn't they just fucking zigzag? But that's yeah. a different debate. 
<laughs> but still, no, it, it's kind of neat seeing how some of this stuff in this film, is, of course, later on is paying dividends. Something I didn't mention, which I'm going to mention now, with Jason X, there was a character, the token black guy, not Mensa, the other guy. His character's name was Waylander. And the corporation, and he went oh, by Way. Wayland Utah. Yeah. And exactly. So that's where this derives. It doesn't really spell it out in this film. There's a little bit of. You can see a little bit of the signia, but not much. Oh, right. But that's like, it, of course, it plays a larger role down in the franchise's history. But it's just kind of seeing stuff like that where, once again, there's borrowing of a fucking name. Well, and in this first one, if you manage to catch the times that it actually says the company name, it doesn't have a D. It's Wayland Wayland, Utani. Yeah, exactly. And it's, of course, retconned and. Which is later to Wayland Utani. I, th- I thought it was kind of neat that the, what they wanted to do was kind of bridge like British and Japanese corporations together. Yeah. Partnerships. Yeah, that's why they did that. But some of that stuff, too, is kind of neat. Thematically, we talked about <laughs> the reverse rape, I suppose, mm-hmm. culture. <laughs> that's kind of neat, man. It doesn't really spell it out, but I think it's really an interesting subject they touch upon. This movie itself just revolutionized the sci-fi horror genre itself. I mean, even sci-fi in general, I believe, from that point going forward. I mean, as far as sci-fi horror goes, I'm still not sure if this high mark has been touched again. Not that I can think of, man. When you start stacking the films This up. is fucking brilliant. This podcast could have just been me saying, like, fucking going to a thesaurus oh, and finding all the words that mean really good. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> awesome <laughs> But no, you're right. I think it's one of those landmark films where it starts to have derivatives after that. You just start seeing this. It starts to splinter. It's like a tree, a family tree. Mm-hmm. You can't help see that. But it's neat to go back and see where this film's influences come from. I talked about A Space Odyssey. We mentioned Stanley Kubrick. Couldn't help mention him because of Gunny. But some of those concepts were borrowed. Star Wars was borrowed because some of the guys that worked on Star Wars incorporated some of the shit from that onto here. Mm-hmm. It's just stuff like that. And then you were talking about some of the early influences writing-wise. Sci-fi, just books and comics and things like that. How can they not be incorporated into this film? My last actual little note that I made when I sat down to watch this movie this morning... It is like a two-hour movie. It is. And for some reason, I have a problem with two-hour movies these days. I might have mentioned it before. (laughs) Like, I'll watch four hours of television shows in a row, but you put me in front of, like, a two-hour movie where it's just like, what? It's a struggle, dude. God. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was I got way too stoned off of some fucking OG ghost train haze (laughs) uh, (laughs) while eating fucking lunch. And midway through this movie, I was feeling the itis. I was fucking baked. We I'm like, so I'm like, I'm going to pause this fucking movie. I'm going to go lay down. Yeah. And I had started to make a note right as I fucking went to lay down. That I'm like, man, the way they keep talking about the computer and calling it mother, it's kind of creepy. Mother? Yeah. I'm like, that's kind of creepy. And then I immediately had to write, but I did just lay down and say to my phone, Okay, Google, set an alarm for 30 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Damn you, technology. (laughs) No, I think that kind of probably goes right back into what you had mentioned right off the top of the bat with the feminization and weaponization, you know, of the xenomorph itself and just the role reversals. 
in that kind of sexual culture. Was, maybe that's what it is, is mother. They're inside the womb of the ship. It's true. More so the alien ship, but... Oh, yeah. And then, I mean, from that point, even when I came back to the movie and I finished the last half of it, I didn't end up making any more notes because I was just sitting there like, this is so fucking good. Yeah, and that's what I really like about it too, man, is it has a really good pacing. The pacing, yeah, at times a little slow, but it builds up that moment of tension and dread. It has that payoff. The execution's perfect. The score is something that I'm, you know, I'm always kind of, I don't know if you want to call it critical per se, but... For me, it kind of makes or breaks a film. It can. It can do that. But this film, I would mention from the get-go, it, it sets the tone See, all the way through those moments. That's the thing for me. This score, I, and I'm, I don't want to sound like I'm getting down on this score. This score is fucking fantastic. But I didn't notice it in the beginning and from the get-go. What I did notice was how it did truly heighten those moments later on. Oh, yeah. Later on when the Xenomorph's oh, on man. the prowl and it's pretty much down to it and Ripley... There's times where it's just swelling and just taking you along for the fucking, the terror yeah. of being kind of hunted by this creature. Yeah, I totally <clears throat> agree with that. You know, this film reminds me, and I don't mean they have similarities in terms of the themes and stuff like that, but it reminds me a lot of when we watched The Shining. I have a better appreciation for these movies now, watching it and watching a little bit more critically as a more passe viewing you know i can see why this film is a landmark i can see why this changed the scope of cinema going forward i talked a little bit in the guts and bolts where i can see where the vision in this film where ridley scott he did it in blade runner i could see certain scenes like the setup with stanton going into where he finally gets abducted but those chains hanging down just the water falling down it's oh, like yeah right. that's there's certain scenes in blade runner he he used that in so this film was a catalyst for him moving forward as well. For all these people. Weaver, we talked about this launched her career. Fuck, man. The quick shots of the alien sort of set up the way that Ridley Scott has done action for the rest of his career. Yeah. So that's the one thing I could change about some of those. God damn it, I would love some <laughs> long pulled out action shots on some of those like gladiator and shit. That would be whatever. Dope. But yeah. <laughs> well, you can definitely see where a lot of that stuff originated from. It's the OG Oh, God. Yeah, this is so good. If you've never seen Alien, go fucking watch it. That's all I have to really say about this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's one of those films we've talked about. It's cemented its legacy in horror and in sci-fi and just in cinema in general. It has one of the most iconic scenes in any film. We talked about the chest-bursting scene. I think if you ask anybody, that's one of those scenes. Whether you've seen this film all the way through or not, they're going to mention that. So, I mean, it has its iconic moments. It's an iconic film. You might be like me at one point in my life where you didn't even see this film, but yeah, you saw you Spaceballs. Or, yeah, and hello, my darling. <laughs> you know what we're getting at. But yeah, I mean, you had mentioned it before. Like We could talk hours on end about this. It's already been done several times before. We're probably not introducing anything new, but it's just a neat film to go back and look at and just kind of see where a lot of this stuff spawned from. And love. Oh, I love this film, man. Oh, we love this movie. I can see why a lot of my family members love this film. We'll probably have to do Aliens soon. Oh, yeah, without a doubt, man. But I'm kind of spent on what I want to say without yeah, probably too. repeating myself. I shot my fucking big xenomorph load, I think. I think it's only appropriate to say it like that, too, because there's a lot of fucking dicks in this. Yeah, and then looking at the Necronom 4. Yeah, Necronom 4. Seeing the, the big phallic. alien dick. 
So much alien dick, so much, so little time. Yeah. Um, now, one other thing I, I do want to mention, I guess, before I sign off on this episode is, for me, watching Scary Movie 2, not knowing that Veronica Cartwright was in this film, and then knowing, like, that was probably the first film I remember from. <laughs> it's kind of neat. For me, it is. It's just kind of a weird loop, mm-hmm. you know? Shit, do we have next week set up? I don't think we do, man. I think we're kind of open. All right, well, we're open for next week. So hopefully we'll come up with something really good for you. Oh, I'm sure we will. Uh, but in order to keep listening, please subscribe. However you're listening to us now, if you don't like how you're listening to us now, we have links to the most popular places at the top of our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Or as always, you can stream us down at the bottom of said website. Yes, you uh, can. There's links to the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter, all on. We're there. on all that stuff. That would be awesome. You can still message us. Message us, squirmcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Yeah, don't be shy. Uh, we're really good about getting back to you on like the Facebooks and all that shit. Exactly. Uh, you might be off the Facebooks now because of data. Damn you, Zuckerberg. Damn it, Zuckerberg. Fucking Fact shit. is, we're putting our lives out there onto the fucking internet anyway, so I'm not too worried about it. Nah, not too much to hide. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you can already go listen to me fucking talk for a hundred hours on the internet I'm oh not, yeah i'm like not between worried about stealing any more of my information <laughs> yeah exactly but no uh, i mean outside of that man i'm really looking forward to the coming months i know we've got some interesting plans coming up with a lot of different concepts so we'll see what happens yeah oh yeah i'm excited i'm super excited a lot of things yeah dude i mean maybe we'll start warning you now because one of the things that we do have coming up that we're going to have to plan for quickly is in like a month. All of June is going to be the Purge month. Yeah, it is. We're leading up to the release of the latest Purge film. And it's not because we're super fans. It's actually because we've never seen them. Correct. And it's a part of Blumhouse. So we want to talk a little bit more about Blumhouse. There's a lot of hype. Yeah. There's we want to see what it's all about. We want to see what it's all about. So we're going to do that with a deep dive. That's coming up all of June is yeah. going to be Purge Month. So be prepared. So we're just filling time between now and then, basically. Yeah, but we got some ideas. We got ideas. We'll be throwing them your way. And as always, for now, Fried Squirms. Out. Out.